I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner of worthy of the calling to which you have been called, which are humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the Lord, the one, to the one who that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who is also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to keep the saints for the work of ministry for building. Up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to measure the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is head into Christ, from who the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Hey, thank you. Let's pray. Just spend a moment to come before God and ask Him to speak to us today. Father, we worship you, we love you, we praise you, and we ask that God today you come and speak to us. We ask that Holy Spirit, you will have your way in this place, have your way in, in our hearts, open our eyes, open our ears to hear from you. And God, we believe that every word of Scripture is God-breathed, that it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, that we, the people of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so God, would you speak to us today. We pray that the Word of God will cut us to the heart, that this will transform our lives and really influence and change the way we live. We live. So Father, we invite you to reign in this place today. Come and speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I hope you have your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at the first part today, okay, the first half. Um, I hope you have been learning something from this series. Okay, we've done Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. Um, and I don't know if you found it a little bit challenging so far because it's a lot of like doctrine and, and principles and, and big ideas. But let's persevere, okay? Okay? And, and I think it will get a little bit more practical as we approach um, chapters 4 to 6, the next few chapters, okay? So, let me start by doing um, a really quick recap of the first three chapters, okay? Now, Ephesians 1, right? We are told that we have every spiritual blessing in Christ, that we are chosen and predestined to be adopted as children of God, that we have redemption, forgiveness, riches of God's grace lavished on us, that we are marked with the Holy Spirit, and Paul prays that we, the believers, will know our glorious inheritance and God's great resurrection power, okay? Ephesians 2, we read, we are no longer dead, we are alive in Christ, we are raised up, we are seated with God in the heavenly realms, we are saved by grace through faith, we are no longer foreigners, we are no longer excluded, we are no longer far away, you know, that the dividing wall of hostility is broken, we are part of God's family, right, members of God's household. Ephesians 3 is about the mystery, okay, I think you covered this in your CG, right, because of the gospel, 
both Jews and Gentiles are one body. We share in the inheritance and promises in Christ Jesus. And Paul prays that the believers will know the extent of God's love, the length and height and depth and width of God's love and God's power. Okay, so chapters 1 to 3 is about these big universal ideas, right? It's about the eternal purposes of God. It's this magnificent vision of this mystery. And then in chapter 4 onwards, Paul moves, it kind of turns, and Paul moves to talking about, uh, from, he, from talking about like deep Christian theology and doctrine, he, he moves to talk about the practical realities um, of our everyday lives. Okay, what does it mean practically to be a Christian? So, one to three is more abstract, right? Four to six will be more, a bit more concrete, okay? Now, here's the thing. We have to cover one to three first, okay? We, we had to go through one to three because we first need to know who we are in Christ, how much God loves us, right? The riches, all these great things, you know, the riches of His grace and, and mercy and power is like, whoa, so many great things. We need to know all that first before we talk about how that then affects the way we behave and we live, right? If we had only started looking at chapter 4 onwards, then it would just seem like a bunch of rules or a bunch of guidelines like how to live as Christians, right? But here is the link between um, the two parts of Ephesians, right? We covered this uh, the last sermon, right? 1 to 3 is the story of the gospel. And 4 to 6 then is that how therefore should we live because of the gospel, right? The first part is about living with Christ, what, what all the benefits that we have with Christ, and four to six is how we should live for Christ, okay? One to three is what we are saved by, right? His grace, His love, mercy, etc. And four to six is what we are saved for, good works, right? One to three is about the power, the privileges, all the benefits, and four to six is now about the responsibilities. Because we all know that with great power comes great responsibility. I mean, you all know that, that, right? You know that movie, right? Which is why at the start of chapter 4, to mark this shift from talking about power and privileges of being a Christian to now talking about the responsibilities of being uh, in Christ, Paul writes this, okay? This is the key verse. As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received, right? Because of all these great and glorious things that you have, the blessings, the inheritance, the grace, the riches, all this wonderful stuff that Christ has done for you and Christ has given to you, now live a life worthy of all that. Live a life worthy of your calling, Right? And this is not like the, a calling to be like a doctor or a missionary or a CEO or whatever, you know, whatever career. It's your calling to be a disciple and follower of Jesus. Right? That's what 1 to 3 has been about, right? Our new life, our new status, our new identity as children of God, as born-again Christians. And now Paul is saying, live a life worthy of this great vision that has been painted for us in chapter 1 to 3. Because we are a new person, right? We're a new humanity. We're a new household. We have a new identity. We are a new family of God. And Paul says, live a life worthy of that. And if you look at the first part of this verse, right? Um, Paul says he's writing, he's issuing this call as a prisoner of the Lord, right? He is writing this literally in chains and under house arrest for the sake of the gospel. But he's also, you know, he's a willing prisoner He's a willing slave for God in the sense that he would do anything for Christ. So this is not just empty talk. You know, Paul is legit. He's not like just sitting comfortably in somewhere in some aircon room and saying, hey guys, get your act together, you know, be good Christians. No, he lives out what he preaches. And he says, I'm writing as a prisoner to tell you, come on guys, live a life worthy of the calling that you have received, right? Live your life in a way that is worthy of all these wonderful blessings and, 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 and inheritance and all that live in a way that is appropriate to your glorious identity and status in Christ. Live a life worthy of the divine calling that you have been given. And to me, this is really the, the heart and the summary of chapters 4 
to 6. Right? This is the great call that we should spend our lives pursuing. This is our great goal as Christians, to live a life worthy of all that we have received. Not because we are saved by it, right? Because we are saved by grace alone. We don't have to do a single thing. But because we have been saved, and, and not just saved, but you know, we've been adopted, we've been given an inheritance, we have been resurrected, raised up, blessed with every spiritual blessing. Because of all that, live a life worthy of the calling. You know, this week, um, I watched the, the Lion King musical. Are you, are you familiar with the story? Right? Simba. Well, you know the story, right? You know, Simba, he had to remember his calling as the son of the king. He had to rise up and go back and fulfill his responsibilities. And he cannot just hakuna matata his life away. Right? He had to go back. He had to live a life worthy of the calling he had received from his father. And it's the same for us as children of the Most High. Right? Don't just waste your life away. And so in chapter 4 to 6, we're going to examine what this life looks like. Okay, what is this life that is worthy of the calling that we have received? And, and as we think about this, as we go through the next three chapters, right, you know, we shouldn't just be thinking about um, ourselves as individuals, but really as a church, as one body in Christ, right, a new humanity. You'll remember um, in, in chapters 1 to 3, chapter 2 especially, right, my last sermon, we talked about how Jews and Gentiles are now one in Christ. There is one new man, one building where God dwells, Christ is the cornerstone, one body, we are one in Christ, right? So, all that is being said in chapter 4 to 6 is not just for the individual, not just for you alone, but for the church, for the body of Christ, right? We are one. And, and that is why I've called this series um, on Ephesians a community in Christ, because that's really who we are as, as a church and as Christians as a body of Christ, that's what we should be like, right? And you will notice also, um, if you look at chapters 4 to 6, that 4 to 6 is all about relationships, actually. It's all about how we relate to each other, uh, one another, as a body of Christ. And today, in this passage, the first part of Ephesians 4, the one big thing I'm going to talk about, okay, the, a key thing that should characterize us as a body of Christ, you know, the thing that we should be all about is that of unity, Okay, unity is the key, is a key characteristic of the church of Christians. And the life of unity in the body of Christ is that life that is worthy of the calling we have received. Okay, in the first three chapters, Ephesians 1 to 3, we read of how Christ has made us one. He has reconciled us humans to God, but he has also reconciled us humans to each other, right? Such that we are one in Christ. And so it makes no sense after Christ has done all that, for the body of Christ to be divided. Okay? So today, that's what we're going to talk about. Unity in the body of Christ. That's a big thing we're going to talk about. Um, and I'm going to take you through the verses. Okay? I hope you have your Bibles. Um, and I hope you have your notebooks. And let's begin. I hope you'll follow along. Okay? Let me go through the verses. Okay. So, it starts like this. Okay? After, the, the, after Paul issues that call to live a life worthy. Verse 2 starts like this. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Now, let me be very honest with you, okay? This, this verse, this verse really gets me, okay? It's like I read 4 verse 1 and I'm like, okay, yes, live a life worthy of the calling. Like, none of this hakuna matata nonsense, you know? I'm going to lay my life down and... I will answer the call. Yes, God, there's no higher calling than to follow you and no turning back. And then I read the first thing he asks us to do, and it is be completely humble. What? It's too hard. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's too hard, God. Be gentle. Be patient. Like, wow, it's too tough. I mean, I don't know about you, but, but for me, you know, when the Bible says things like um, persevere, like, Endure hardship as discipline. You know, fight the good fight. I'm like, yes, okay, okay. But when the Bible says, be completely humble, I'm like, well, the Bible says, in humility, consider others better than yourself. What? No! It's too, too, that's too hard, God. But that's the first thing we're told to do here. Right? After he says, like, live a life worthy of the calling. You know, he doesn't go on to say, like, 
take big risks, you know, do like bombastic and dramatic things. He says, be completely humble and gentle and patient and bear with one another in love. You see, this, unfortunately, is the secret of unity. You know, it's unity comes about not when we organize like a great gathering or we do like events in a certain way or we have like a cool brand that, that everyone buys into or we have like super fun team bonding activities and strategies. That, that's not it. No, unity in the body of Christ doesn't come about just because like we have a great camp every year, we stay together for four days, maybe we, we come up with like a loud gen cheer or something. It doesn't come across, it doesn't come about by that. But when we humbly recognize and accept the importance and value of other people, of each other, and we put their needs before our own. When we are patient and gentle and bear with one another, no matter how annoying or frustrating or undeserving we are, that is how we achieve unity. You know, if you read like other translations of this verse, you will you'll see words like meekness, you know, long-suffering, forbearance. You know, it's about being generous in terms of forgiving and accepting each other. You know, it's about making allowances for, for each other people's faults and, and weaknesses and, and flaws. It's about having the humility and meekness of Christ. You know, Jesus had, had all the power and glory and majesty, and yet he chose to act in gentleness and patience and love towards people. And we have to ask ourselves, do we behave like that? Do we behave like that in Lao Jen? Do we behave like that in, in church with, with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? And I find it so hard. <laughs> I, I, I find it so hard because, well, people are annoying. <laughs> and, and because this all involves dying to self. You know, we, we may think that being humble and meek is about being weak and pathetic and, you know, oh, we're not meant to be like that. But no, being humble is about putting your own desires, your own preferences, your rights, you know, your, your needs aside and instead seeking the welfare of others, seeking to serve their needs. It is to be unconcerned about our own rights and what we want. Right? Tim Keller says that the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself, it is thinking of myself less. You just don't think about what you want in yourself. And you know, behind disunity is always the sin of pride. Right? Proud and arrogant people break unity, but humble people build unity. You know, I've, I've been a Christian for very long. I've, I've been in church for a very long time and I've seen my fair share of people you know, having conflicts, like getting offended with each other, upset by each other, you know, then they leave church and all that. And, you know, fellowship is always spoiled when people get offended, right? Fellowship is always spoiled when pride gets in the way. You know, when we say, you know, I'm right, you're wrong and you're dumb and you have no idea what you're doing or saying. Like, you shouldn't do that. How can you do that? Ugh, can't be in the same church as you. That's what breeds disunity. And I believe that this really grieves the heart of the father. You know, I, I really hate it and I get really upset when my kids fight or when they are mean to each other. And I believe in the same way disunity deeply upsets Jesus who died on the cross to bring about reconciliation and unity. And this is why the Bible says, verse 3, it says, make every effort to guard the unity, to preserve and maintain the unity. It says, do everything you can. Make every effort. Spare no effort to guard the unity and harmony and peace of the body of Christ. This is a huge priority for the church, right? The Bible is saying, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. And then it goes on, verse 4 is then like a strong statement and almost like a declaration that we are one. So, sounds like some National Day slogan. One people, one nation, 
one six. Wow, come on, where's your pride? That's your six. Okay, fine. Verse four. Verse four, it says, We are one body, one spirit. We are called to one hope. Remember, if you remember in chapter one, verse 18, Paul prays that we will know the hope to which God has called us to, right? That all of us as believers, we share in the glorious future of Christ. We're all called to one hope. We have one Lord. We have one faith. We have one baptism, as we witnessed last week, right? Baptism is the outward sign that identifies all of us believers as one body, that we belong together. And we have one God and Father over all. Now, notice that this oneness, right, this unity, is also the unity of the Holy Trinity, right? God the Spirit, God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and God the Father, it is about the unity of the Trinity. Our unity as a body of Christ is grounded in the unity of the Godhead. Right? The Godhead, three in one, Father, Spirit, Son, right? That's it. The Godhead unity. Now, I know that the Holy Trinity can be a bit of a confusing concept and we, cannot, we can discuss this offline further. But for now, let me just put it to you that there is one God but three persons in the Godhead. Right? You know the song, right? I believe in God our Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. Right? Three in one. Three persons in perfect harmony, but not three separate gods. Three persons, one God. And when Paul writes about this unity that we, we should have as a church, he emphasizes the unity of the Trinity. The unity of the church arises out of the unity of our God because the unity of the Godhead cannot be destroyed. And so Christian unity is the unity of the Trinity. That's the kind of unity the church is called to have. And we are one body because we are under one head, our Lord Jesus Christ. We are one family because we are under one Father. Right? We share the same, same Holy Spirit, the same Lord, the same Father. This is what unites us. You know, it's not just stuff like camps and barbecues or whatever. This is what unites us, that we are one in all these things, that we are one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Therefore, spare no effort, make every effort to guard the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So, that is verse 1 to 6, okay? That humility and, and, and gentleness and, and patience and all that, it brings about unity, that we should make every effort to guard this unity in the body, and it is a unity that reflects the unity of our God, the unity of the Trinity, okay? Now, verse 7, look at verse 7. Paul goes on to elaborate and explain more about this unity. This unity is not a boring and dull uniformity where we're all like, exactly the same as each other. You know, we all speak the same way. No personality, no differences. No, 1 to 6 says that we are one. But that doesn't mean that we, we are just exact replicas of each other, right? Because verse 7 goes on to say, but to each one of us, right, to each one of us specifically, Christ has given grace, verse 7, and verse 8, Christ has given gifts. Each one of us is given his own gifts, okay? Um, now, I'm going to skip verse 9, okay, and not go into whether it means like Christ descended to hell or he descended from heaven to earthly regions. and okay, Anyway, it's in brackets, okay? So let's, let's not get stuck here. We can talk about this later, okay? But let's not get stuck here and distracted from the main passage, okay? Let's look at verse 8. Verse 8 is actually a quote from Psalm 68, 18. Most of, I think most of your Bibles will have a, a footnote that tells you that. And Psalm 68 is about God ascending His throne in victory over His enemies. And here, Paul is talking about Christ ascending to heaven also in victory, in his victory on the cross over death and sin and shame. And this image here, Christ is likened to a military conqueror. He's returning home after being victorious in battle. That's why it says he's leading captives in his train. And he's giving gifts to his subjects, okay? He's giving the plunder of, uh, from, from the battle, okay? The booty, that's what they call it, right? From the, from the battle. He's giving it to his subjects, okay? And so Christ is here giving us gifts. Verse 11, he gave gifts of being apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Different people have different gifts or gifting. You see, God's unity is not uniformity or monotony. 
there are a variety of gifts in the church. So we pursue unity, but it's not like this boring, you know, monotony. There is also diversity. Okay, it's not mutually exclusive. In fact, you know, if you've read the New Testament, there are several instances where Paul gives a list of different gifts, right? Wow, so many. You can see that there really is a wide variety of gifts in the body of Christ, right? From prophecy to serving, teaching, you know, miracles, tongues, healing, administration. Whoa, who has that gift? Please come and help me. You know, apostles, prophets, whatever. And I believe that the, the important thing is not so much what exactly um, all these gifts are. Now, I don't even think these lists are exhaustive, actually. The important thing, I think, is what is the purpose of all these gifts? And verse 12 tells us that. Verse 12, the gifts are to equip His people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Okay, that's what gifts are for. Gifts are for works of service. Remember chapter 1? We are God's workmanship created to do good works, right? The purpose of these gifts is for good works of service, serving people. And you know, in, in each of these passages, when Paul writes about different gifts, the context is always him talking about the body of Christ. Okay, the body of Christ. That the gifts are given to prepare and equip God's people to do His work and serve one another so that the body of Christ may be built up. So that the church can become bigger and better and stronger. Um, in fact, if you look at 1 Corinthians 12, it's the, where so many of the gifts um, are listed. 1 Corinthians 12 says something very similar to Ephesians, okay? It says, there are different gifts, but the same Spirit, one Spirit, distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord, one Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. One Spirit, one Lord, one God. And as one body, we reflect the unity of the Trinity. And verse 7 says, now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, is given for the common good, common good, that the body of Christ may be built up, okay? So our unity is not like a boring uniformity. There is diversity, but all these diverse and different gifts are still ultimately for the purpose of unity, to build up the church, right? Verse 13 says, these gifts are given to build up the church until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Okay? Are we doing okay so far? Are you still with me? Are you following? Now, we've been talking a lot about unity, right? And that is a key characteristic of being a community in Christ. A key characteristic of living a life worthy of the calling um, that we have received. But if you look at verse 13 here, okay, it says that these gifts and works of service, right, the purpose of, of serving, of ministry and all that is number one, unity, but also, number two, maturity, that we will become mature, right? The gifts are given so that the body of Christ will be built up until we all reach unity and until we all become mature. So those are the two goals, Unity and maturity. And so just like unity, this idea of maturity, right, spiritual maturity, is a, a key characteristic of being a community in Christ, right? Growing in maturity is a key characteristic of living a life worthy of the calling. Now, if you think about it, you need maturity to have unity. You need to be mature in order to be completely humble and gentle and patient and bear with one another, right? It takes maturity to put others before yourself. Verse 14 says, when we become mature, then we will no longer be infants, right? Now, infants, if you've ever interacted with them, are obviously completely immature and completely self-centered, right? When a baby is hungry, she just cries, she doesn't think like, oh, it's 3 a.m. My mommy had a long day preparing her sermon. I'll just let her sleep. And sleep. No, she cries. Ah, give me milk. Like that, that's, that's how babies are. Babies want what they want whenever they want. And in the same way, 
our, our natural fallen human nature is self-centered, right? You notice how babies don't need to be taught to grab things for themselves, but they need to be taught how to share, right? And as they grow, as the kid grows and mature, they will have to learn and be taught that the world doesn't revolve around them, right? There are other human beings around. You know, my two older kids, they are five and seven years old now, and now is a time where they have to start to learn that they need to consider their other people around, you know, not just think about themselves. And of course, as parents, as the most mature people in the family, or at least we're supposed to be, you know, we, we constantly try to put their needs ahead of ours, right? When we, let's say we go out for dinner, we won't be like, oh, I'm really craving like curry fish head. And then we're like, ah, I just go there. I don't care if these kids can't eat it, right? No, we have to consider what they can eat. Is there a high chair? You know, is it kid friendly? Blah, 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 right? And then we choose the place accordingly because it's not just about what we want. We put their needs before ours. And so unity and maturity actually have to go together. And when we're immature, we are easily offended, right? We, 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 we always get our feelings hurt. You know, we're very conscious and sensitive about how people treat us, what people think of us. You know, we always think things like, oh, it's not fair. Not fair, what about me? Right? That, that's, what, that's what kids say, right? Immature people, they, they cannot take criticism, right? They're not humble, they're not gentle, they're not patient because they're always thinking about themselves. We are always thinking about ourselves. And, and I think that's why Paul puts these two things together, reaching unity and becoming mature. That as we become more united in our faith and in our knowledge of God, then the more we grow in maturity. And the more we grow in maturity, then the more we are able to put others first and reach unity. And you know, as a Christian, right, you can't grow in spiritual maturity like just on your own, just I'll just work on myself as an individual. You know, maturity is not just like having a lot of knowledge and, and all that. Maturity is developed through being deeply involved in a spiritual community, through relating to others in the body of Christ. That's why you, you won't grow and you won't mature if all you do is occasionally drop by church whenever you're free. You won't grow, you won't mature if you don't bother to build relationships, and if you make no effort to guard and pursue unity. You won't mature spiritually if you just keep fighting with people, getting offended, and then, you know, you bear a grudge, you avoid certain people, and you make no effort to guard unity. Because all that speaks of disunity and also spiritual immaturity. That's spiritual immaturity. And then Paul goes on to talk about another mark of spiritual immaturity. He says in verse 14 that infants, the spiritually immature, are tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. You know, when we lack maturity, we are also unstable. We are not steady. Have you ever seen a baby try to walk? Right? They are unsteady, right? When they're first learning to walk. Now, what does it mean for us to be tossed back and forth, blown here and there? What does it mean to be unstable like a spiritual infant? I think there are a few things, okay? Firstly, in terms of our biblical convictions, okay? Are we immature people whose opinions and beliefs keep changing based on you know, the latest post that we read or article that we see or stuff that we hear from different people? Right? You know, we don't really know what we believe or why we believe it. So when somebody says something, we're like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, that's true. Huh? And then somebody says something else, we're like, oh, yeah, actually, that, that, that sounds right as well. And we're swayed all the time. Now, I know that there are a lot of things and issues um, that, that can be confusing. But we want to grow towards maturity and not be unstable in our beliefs. Right? And the way to be mature is to know the Word of God well. Right? This is our, it's our ultimate authority. If we are familiar with it, if we study it and meditate on it day and night, then we won't be blown here and there by every wind of teaching. You know, for example, if, if somebody comes up to you and say like, you know, like uh, this week, right, India, India um, decriminalized homosexuality, right? 
when people say, how can homosexuality be wrong? You know, God is God of love. God loves everyone, regardless of what they're like. Therefore, God is not against homosexuality. God created them that way. And so we should celebrate that. How do we respond to that? So much in there, you know. How do we respond to that? Do we say like, oh yeah, that, that sounds true, huh? Right? Are we blown here and there by everything that people say? When we are mature, when we are familiar with the Bible, and when we have stable, solid, biblical convictions, that is when we are mature, right? We are firm in our beliefs because they are based on the Word of God, not based on the latest thing you heard. That is maturity. And spiritual babies, on the other hand, they are not discerning. Right? They are swayed by, by any teaching because they can't tell whether or not that teaching is biblical. You know, babies, they eat anything. Right? They just put everything in their mouth and they can't discern whether it's poison, whether it's healthy or not, whether it's dirty or not, whether it's even food. Right? They just put everything in their mouth. They take everything in. Are we spiritually immature like that? Like infants? Now, secondly, I think being um, immature is also to have our faith easily shaken, right? The verse is tossed back and forth by the waves. And when we're immature, we are easily shaken by trouble. You know, when things get tough, we're like, oh God, are you even real? You know, do you even love me, right? If we constantly need God to answer our every prayer in a dramatic way, if not, we cannot believe that He is real and He loves us, or if we need to, like, feel the feels, you know, to believe that God is with us, if we need, like, great music and lights and a certain atmosphere, if not, we can't worship. If we have a short spiritual attention span, we constantly need to be, like, entertained in church. If we cannot be patient and steady, enduring and persevering, then we are spiritual infants. And you know, babies, they need constant entertainment, right? When, when you're immature, you're always bored. I'm bored. Oh, you say that all the time, right? I'm bored. You know, we can be like driving the kids to like Disneyland or something, but it's an hour drive in the car, they'll tell you, I'm bored. You're like, what? Just wait an hour and you'll be entertained, you know, entertainment of a lifetime. But no, I'm bored now, right? When you're immature, that's how it is. You need constant entertainment. You need constant attention. And you know, have you, have you seen babies? Like, like one moment they can be laughing and then like the next moment they're crying. They're like completely emotionally unstable. That is what it is to be spiritually immature as well if that's how we're like spiritually. But when we're mature and we are steady and we know how to handle suffering, we know how to handle tough times, we know how to endure and continue being faithful even when things don't go well, or don't go according to what we like, right? Even if, like, the worship team plays really badly that day, or the pastor preaches, like, this long and boring sermon, you know, or someone in church upsets you, or, or like, we're going through a tough period, it doesn't shake our faith. It doesn't cause us to become unsteady. And so, as a church, as a community in Christ, we are called to pursue unity and to pursue maturity. And I'd like to suggest two um, attitudes that we can adopt to live this life, okay, to live such a life that is worthy of the calling. Okay, the first is this. Don't be surprised by spiritual maturity in others. It's how it's going to be like in the body of Christ. There will be infants and there will be older people, right? Some people are going to be spiritually immature. And don't be shocked or like offended or disgusted at how immature fellow believers can be, right? Some people are spiritual infants and let's make allowances for that. You know, the difference between like a one-year-old and a 20-year-old is enormous, right? My, my youngest kid, Justine, she's one and a half years old. She's not toilet trained yet, okay? So she still has to wear diapers, right? So if one day, you know, I, I forget to wear a diaper or something and, and, and then she, she pees on the floor, right? I'm not going to be like, Oh my gosh, Jesse, why did you pee? Like, I can't believe you did that. Like, why would you do that? Like, oh, no, I mean, like, she, she's not toilet trained. Right? She's a baby. I wouldn't be like so surprised or like shocked or offended. But if one of you pees on the floor, 
um, I mean, uh, that would be unacceptable, right? But I wouldn't be surprised by a baby who, you know, who has to wear diapers and then she just pees and poops wherever. She's a baby. I won't get like angry and frustrated at her because of that. Do, do you understand the point that I'm trying to make? You make allowances for people that, yes, there will be people who are spiritually immature. We, we should remember that there are spiritual babies around and we should be completely humble and gentle and patient and bear with one another in love. We should remember that we're all saved by grace. We're not saved because we became, we attained a level of spiritual maturity. So don't be surprised by spiritual maturity in others. Don't be offended by it. Don't be shocked and disgusted. But make every effort to guard the unity. And yet, for ourselves, don't be satisfied with spiritual immaturity in yourself. Now, of course, we all start off as babies. But it doesn't mean that we should remain spiritual infants forever, right? Yes, we are all fallen. We all have weaknesses. We all have flaws. We have bad attitudes and, and, and all that. But we can't just say, oh, that's the way I am. I'm just like that, right? If you are 13 years old and you're still wearing diapers or you're peeing on the floor, I mean, God loves you, but you've got to grow up, Right? And Ephesians tells us that the power of God is in us, right? The same power that conquered the grave lives in you. And so whatever weaknesses and flaws and sins that you struggle with, God is more powerful. God can overcome that. So don't be satisfied with immaturity in ourselves, right? We are born again in Christ, but then after that, we need to grow. We need to develop. We need to mature spiritually. So verse 15 um, Paul goes on to say, instead of being immature infants, instead of being tossed around and blown around and all that, goes on to say that a sign of maturity is this, that we speak the truth in love. Now, I want to spend a bit, uh, a bit of time talking about this because I think this is a very important and a very practical key um, to growing in maturity and unity uh, as a community in Christ. Speaking the truth in love. Now, I think this, you know, this is one of those things that, that we all kind of know, but it's very hard to, to practice and actually live out, right? But I think this is really the key thing we have to remember when we are faced with, with disagreements or, or immaturity or conflicts in the church. Speak the truth in love. You can't have one without the other. It is possible to have such a zeal for truth that you don't have love for people. Right? I don't know if you have encountered people who sometimes they get so concerned about defending the truth that they become unloving and aggressive. Right? And unfortunately, if you look at um, church history, right, you can find many examples of this. You know, people disagree about something and both sides insist they are right and then it escalates into like a church split and it's ugly and it's, it's not at all amicable and, and you know, everything, relationships are spoiled and all that. Or I don't know if you've heard of Bible bashing. You know, sometimes in their, in their zeal for truth, people go around and be like, this is sin, you deserve to go to hell, you're a sinner, you're going to burn in hell, and then I'm, I'm going to beat you up or burn you or whatever, right? Or, or like if you think about how the Pharisees behaved in the Gospels, so concerned with truth that you forget love. But it is also possible to go to the other extreme. Right? To just be nice and kind and agree with anyone with no care for the truth. Right? Oh, as long as we love each other, you know, God is love and anyone can believe whatever they want to believe and they can do whatever they like. Now, if people live and persist in sin and the church is just like, ah, it's okay, you know, grace, grace. Like, at least they still attend church. And, and the church, we never address sin Right? We do not hold the truth of God in high regard. This is how compromise and false teaching comes into the church. And so truth without love is too hard, but love without truth is too soft. And if you think about it, you know, love without truth is not real love. Love without truth is actually deadly. You know, if my five-year-old comes to me and says, she really wants to drink that bottle of vodka... And I'm like, 
okay, I love you, girl. I'll let you do whatever you want. And I don't tell her the truth about vodka. That's not real love. That's deadly. But truth without love is also deadly, right? If all I do is like, I harshly tell her, no, you can't drink that, you will die, right? Or like everything, no, you can't do that, you will die. Then all that she takes away is, my mom doesn't want to let me do anything and I'm going to die. So you got to have both truth and love together. And you know, if you think about it, the gospel message is the perfect example of extreme truth and extreme love put together. The first part of the gospel is this. When Jesus went to the cross, he was actually communicating a very harsh and offensive truth. He was saying, he's going to the cross and he's saying, you and I, we are so hopeless, we are so sinful, we are so tialat that nothing less than the death of the Son of God can save you. Nothing else will save you because that's how lost and fallen you are. And that is the extreme truth. And you can't understand the gospel if you don't understand this truth, right? This cold, hard truth that on our own, we completely and utterly suck. We have nothing. But the gospel message doesn't stop there. Jesus didn't just show the truth. He showed love, right? In the ultimate act of love and sacrifice, Jesus died on the cross in our place to say, yeah, you suck but this is how much I love you and this is how much you're worth to me. So when we relate to each other, we need both truth and love and that is true maturity in Christ. When we speak the truth in love, and in verse 15, when we do that, we will grow up, we will grow to become mature in Christ. We will grow to become the mature body of Christ. Now, verse 16 wraps things up, okay? As we grow together in maturity, as we come together in unity with every part, with its different gifts doing its work, the body of Christ grows and builds itself up in love. Now, I like this um, from the New Living Translation. Um, the, the verse is translated this way. He, Christ, He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, the different gifts, it helps the other parts to grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. And this brings us back to the start of the passage that it is love that keeps the unity of the body of Christ. Love, humility, gentleness, patience, long-suffering, all these stuff. Bearing with one another in love to maintain unity. Speaking the truth in love is a sign of, uh, sign of maturity. And then the body of Christ grows and builds itself up in love, to be full of love. And this is how the community of Christ lives a life worthy of our calling. That love is what joins the body together. Love, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. That is what we're called to do. Now, I'm going to conclude soon, but let me offer some final thoughts on, on, on our passage today. You know, the call, the call is to live a life worthy, right? Live a life worthy of a calling. And before all the other things, you know, in the rest of the chapters 4 to 6, like, do not steal, you know, like, watch the way you talk, you know, children will be your parents, etc., etc. Before all that, the first thing mentioned about living a life worthy of the calling is to be humble, gentle, patient, loving. And, and, you know, as I've told you, I, I find it so hard to obey, to truly obey this commandment. You know, the Word of God says, be completely humble, but there's so much pride in me still, right? The Word of God says, be gentle, but wow, this just doesn't come naturally for me, you know? The Word of God says, be patient. It's like, I have three young kids, okay? I'm almost always impatient. And the Word of God says, bear with one another in love, in some people, that's very hard, right? You just uh, you cannot bear them. You cannot, just cannot bang them, you know? But the Bible says, live like this and make every effort 
Make every effort. Do everything that you can to keep the unity of the Spirit. You know, unity is, is really, really important to God. I don't know if you're, um, some of you will remember uh, a sermon that I preached at the end of last year about the wonder of oneness. You know, before Jesus went to the cross, the key thing that he prayed for, for his disciples, for his followers, was that we would be one just as he and the Father are one. And that's what Paul is writing about here too, that we must be united because it reflects the unity of God, of our God, the unity of the Trinity. And unity in the body of Christ is, is so important to God. You know, by this will the world know that we are Christians when we love one another. And so let's really make every effort to preserve and pursue unity in the body. You know, let's let go of offenses and like irritation and then grudges and like, oh, but he's so annoying and all that, you know, with, with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And let's love one another as Jesus loved us. That's the call. Now, at the same time, you know, if you look at verse 13, right, verse 13 says, until we all reach unity and become mature, and until we all attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And my question is, do you think we will ever attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ? Will or can any of us ever fully measure up to the full and complete standards of Christ? I mean, I, I, I don't think so, lah. Right? I think this will only happen perfectly at the end when Jesus returns. And so in the same way, I think complete and perfect unity actually can't be achieved until the very end. You know, for as long as I remember, uh, in Lao Gen, like maybe for the past 10 years or so, we were always talking about having a love culture. You know, having a culture of love, like loving one another, right? Because by this, all men will know that we are Jesus' disciples. And have we achieved it? You know, can, can we say like, oh yeah, there's definitely love culture in Lao Gen. Now, I mean, I don't know, but I, I, I don't think so. Like not 100% at least, right? I think we, we still have a long way to go. Will we ever achieve it fully? Probably not. But it doesn't mean that we stop trying, right? We make every effort to pursue and to maintain unity. And, and I think in the same way on a larger scale, right? I don't think full unity in, in the church of God can be achieved until Jesus comes again. I mean, today already in Christianity, there are so many denominations, right? There's Anglican, Presbyterian, Methodist, etc. Why are there all these different denominations? Because Christians cannot completely agree on some things, right? I mean, of course, there are non-negotiables, right? We, we have one spirit, one Lord, one hope, one God, and all that, right? But we are not completely united on all things, right? Certain practices, you know, certain issues, you know, right, right now um, in Bible college, I'm doing a module on, on church history. And you know, just like <laughs> throughout the years, like sometimes Christians got, are divided over like the smallest things. And, and so, yeah, things are not perfect now. We probably will never achieve perfect unity in the church. But it doesn't mean that we don't bother pursuing it. Because the Bible says, make every effort make every effort to maintain unity. And if I bring it down to a personal level, you know, I, if you haven't already, um, one day you are probably going to get very upset with someone in church. Um, you know, maybe, maybe to quite a serious extent, right? And, and very often, and, and I know this very well because I'm part of the church leadership, people get really upset with the leaders. You know, oh, why is church doing this? Like, why is church doing so much of this or not doing this? Like, why is this youth pastor so terrible, you know? Why are the leaders like that? Like, ah, oh, worship shouldn't be this way. You know, sermon, you shouldn't preach this way. Like, CGs, it shouldn't be this way, right? You know, evangelist events, you're doing it all wrong, you know? And, and, and oh, just like, everyone's upset. <laughs> everyone's upset with the leaders, upset with the church. And, you know, it's, it's fine to question. It's fine to challenge. It's fine to want to get better. But first and foremost, I would urge all of us to remember this, to be completely humble 
and gentle and patient and bear with one another in love and make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. We are one body. We have one Spirit. We are all called to one hope. We are one. We're together. And and I just want to end with this as I invite the worship team up. You know, as we read these next few chapters of of Ephesians, right, chapter 4 to 6, Paul paints a vision for the church, you know, for the community of God. And, And he's saying this is what a community in Christ should look like. Now, I want to put it to us today. Imagine, okay, imagine what our church, or imagine what Lao Jen would look like if all of us, all of us, we were completely humble and gentle and patient with each other and always we bore, bore, we, we would bear with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit growing together in maturity, speaking the truth in love, you know, truly being a community in Christ. Imagine what our, our ministry would look like if we all practice this. Because those are the characteristics of a life worthy of the calling we have received. You know, imagine if Lao Jen was truly, truly a place of deep fellowship, you know, that we would go beyond superficial friendships and, and just like being a social gathering and and hanging out. Imagine what it would be like if all of us made every effort to preserve our Christian unity. Imagine if each of us, we actively used our gifts to build up the body of Christ. I mean, what a great place this would be, right? What a great church it would be. And I know that this is an ideal picture, but it is a biblical ideal that we should strive towards because we want to live a life worthy the calling we have received as a people of God because we've been given every spiritual blessing and inheritance, glorious riches, grace and all that. Because we've been given all that, we want to live like that. We want to work and strive towards this ideal. You know, the Bible is not just some words for us to make our individual lives better. The Word of God was given to us so that as a body of Christ, corporately, together, we can magnify and glorify our one Lord and our one God. And and that's really the calling and challenge for us today. To be a community in Christ committed to growing in unity, maturity, and love. To live a life worthy of the calling we have received. I'm going to ask us now to all stand up. We're going to sing a song. Um, Be lifted higher. You know, as we sing, I really hope that we can commit to God that if we stand together and we really want to be such a community in Christ, where Christ is lifted high and glorified and exalted, where we are one body with Christ as the head over everything, Christ is the chief cornerstone. Jesus Christ lifted high above all. Let's declare that for our ministry, for our church, for our community as we think about unity and maturity.
God says. I want to urge us really to make a commitment, make a commitment to pursue unity, to pursue maturity in the body of Christ. Make a commitment to God to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Make a commitment that we would make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That even though it's hard, we will be completely humble and gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love.